Turn, if you would, to the third chapter of the book of Proverbs. Just a reminder, if you didn't already know, next Sunday is Christmas. We will not be having class. We will be having church. There will be one church service at 11 o'clock. The next week is uh, New Year's Day, and we will not be having class, and there will only be a single church service that Sunday also. So enjoy your holidays, and we'll be back in Proverbs in uh, three weeks. But today we're going to finish chapter 3. It's only taken us eight lessons to get this far, but we'll pick up speed somewhere in here, I'm sure. Just to get a running start into today's lesson, let's pick up in verse 19. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. We spent a lot of time last week discussing the fact that God's wisdom is built into the fabric of the universe. When God says, this is how you should live your life, he's telling us what conforms to reality in the world around us. It's not like this is what really works, but he's telling us to do something contrary to it. This is the wisdom that was used to create the world in the first place, and God is saying, follow that wisdom when you live your life. It is not alien to the way God created the world. Now, it is alien to the way sinful human beings interpret the world. It is alien to the way the world looks at situations. It is different than that. But it is not alien to the true fabric of the universe. And then uh, Solomon returns to more discussion about the um, benefits of following wisdom. My son, preserve sound judgment and discernment. Do not let them out of your sight. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When, when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being snared. The idea is that those who are engaged in the path of foolishness live a life in imminent danger at all times. Now, we see, we have seen in the past two or three weeks, that as believers... Our lives are in the hands of God, and we can go home to glory whenever he decides that it's our time. But the imminent disaster that awaits those who are walking the path of foolishness is not a threat or a concern for those who are walking the path of wisdom. As we have said repeatedly in this class, death does not mean you lose, for the Christian Death means you get to go home. To the unbeliever, to the person living the life of foolishness, all of life is a constant peril that brings disaster. And that is a very large distinction. So, we pick up today's lesson in verse 27. And what we're going to see first are a series of exceptionally exceptionally practical proverbs on how we are to live our lives. So let's take them in order. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it, 
when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later. I'll give it tomorrow when you now have it with you. Does this sound familiar to someone? Go read the second chapter of the book of James. James is talking about the relationship between faith and doing good deeds. And he says, if somebody comes to you and they're cold or they're hungry, don't tell them you're going to pray for them. If you have the money in your pocket to deal with that situation right there. Yes, we ought to pray for people. We should always pray for people. But if you have the means at that point in time to deal with the issue that is right before you, why is it that you wouldn't do it? Why does Solomon have to tell us, do not withhold good from those who deserve it? Why would he have to tell us that? We're selfish. <laughs> We're self-centered. We want what we have, and we don't want to give it away. Now look at this phrase just out of curiosity. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it. That's an interesting phrase to me. First off, we need to remember that it's saying do not withhold good. Now you and I, in our nice 21st century American minds, the first thing we think about is giving money to someone, right? That's doing good. But the statement here is actually much, much broader than that. I have the opportunity to do a good deed, to do a good action for someone right now. And in fact, that someone is living in relationship with me to the point that they really have a right to expect that good deed. They deserve it. And yet even then, even in the best of circumstances, I have this tendency to not do it. This is exactly what we see Jesus accusing the Pharisees of when he says you ought to be taking care of your aged parents, but you're not doing it because you're claiming all of your money is dedicated to God, therefore I can't use it on my aged parents. And he says, you hypocrite and you brood of vipers. Yes. What does it say? Right now, while we have the opportunity, what is the implication? Life is short. You'll reach the point where you won't have the opportunity to do it. Right now, while you have the energy, while you have the strength, while you have the resources, do good. And as the verse in Galatians says, to everybody, but especially to those that are believers, that are in the household of the faith. The implication is, you ready for this? The implication is we have an obligation to do good. There are those who we come in contact with that we have an obligation to do good to them. Now, that may be money. 
It might be money, but it might not be money. It could be a lot of different things. You know, there's a, there's a country western song about, you know, having lots of friends, and then when you get in trouble, you call them up and, and, and. And the chorus of the song is basically, there's going to be those, when you call them up, will come help you. They won't ask you what time it is. They won't ask you how far away you live. They're coming. The implication is there, there are those who we have an obligation to do good to. Now, hold that in mind a little bit because we're going to expand on that in just a moment. But right now, we need to once again examine what is it that prevents us from doing that? And the obvious answer is we're selfish. We're narcissistic. We're sitting here thinking about ourselves all the time. If I do you good today, I might have to do you good tomorrow. And I might have to do it the next day. And gosh, that would really stink. You know? You know, who knows what, I'm, what door I'm opening? And we've had this discussion in this class actually off and on for the last couple of weeks because we do have this huge fear of being taken advantage of. We really do. And just to remind us, because I'm, I'm not naive, there are people out there who want to take advantage of you. Okay? That's why there are passages about being wise as serpents. And I mean, we are supposed to exert wisdom. But what we have here, what we have in this passage right here, is someone that we have a relationship with and we're refusing to do what is good for that person for some selfish reason. And the writer is saying, don't do that. Don't withhold the good when you have it to give. Do not withhold good from, the, from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. When it is in your power to act. You know, I have this vision sometime, you know, Gosh, if I had a million dollars, I'd go take care of that person's problem over there. And you know what that is? That becomes an excuse not to do anything. It really does. If only, if only I had this, then I could do that. If only I win the, won the lottery, I'd buy you lunch, okay? <laughs> but that's all you're getting. But it becomes an excuse, it's like sometime in the future I'm going to do good. Sometimes when my ship comes in, I'll do good. No. God has already given you more than you know what to do with. Once again, it may not be money. It may not be money. It probably isn't money. He's given you time. He's given you energy. He's given you talents. And he's given people around you that need good done to them. And guess what? That's your job. Walking on the path of wisdom means that we are no longer looking after only our good. What's in it for me right now? What can I get out of it right now? What it means is we are looking to the sphere around us and saying, how can I do good to those around me? 
what do I have the means right now to do for those around me? Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give you tomorrow, when you now have it with you. The implication is the neighbor comes and says, you know, can I have 10 bucks? Or, worst case, you borrowed 10 bucks from the neighbor, and the neighbor wants it back. And you go, tomorrow, when you've got 10 bucks in your pocket. Now, we would never do that, right? Well, maybe we would. Once again, this desire to hang on, to grasp firmly that which God has put in front of us. It's like mine. And God is saying, no, it's not yours, it's mine. It's God's. And if God has given it to you, it's not for your personal edification, it's for you to spread around. Don't tell your neighbor, come back. As it says in the book of James, don't tell the person that's starving, I'll pray for you. If you have the money to buy them a meal right then. That's a loose translation of James. But it is what it says. Don't do it. And as we've talked about repeatedly, giving them the cash may not be the wisest thing in the world. But giving them the cash may be the easiest thing in the world. What's a lot harder is to go and meet the needs of that individual personally. You know, we can give money to some charitable organization and, gosh, we are sanitized from the problem. It's a lot harder to get your hands dirty in the problem. So, do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when you now have it with you. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Okay. Show of hands. How many of you this week sat at home and plotted harm against your neighbor? Okay, we're, we're okay on this one. Go ahead. Oh, we have a hand. They, they moved. <laughs> they moved before you could carry it out. Yes. Taking a bunch of sugar to them? Are they diabetic? <laughs> Look at the implication of this and the preceding passage, okay? The preceding passage talks about doing good. We have the obligation to do good to those around us. And we oftentimes sit at home and watch our TV and we don't do anything. But in reality, while we would never admit it, while we would never ever ever admit it in nice, polite Christian company, what we really want to happen to some of our bad, pagan neighbors in some denomination that we don't like is we want bad things to happen to them. Okay, we, we would never admit that, okay? We would never admit that we want bad things to happen. But, you know, the guy is a, 
a louse, so he is a louse, so obviously we want bad. We get into this idea that somehow bad things happening to them validates the fact that they're wrong and I'm right. Remember the discussion that we had when we went through 2 Corinthians? We had all these distractors in the church that were undermining Paul's authority. And what they were saying was, look at all the bad things happening to Paul. He's got to be outside the will of God. And Paul says, no, I am participating in the suffering of Christ. But we have this mentality that good things happen to me and mine, and since you disagree with me and mine, bad things might happen to you. Don't sit at home hoping bad things happen to those who disagree with you. Now, the other interesting discussion is the use of the word neighbor. Now, in modern English language, when we talk about neighbor, we talk about the person who lives on either side of us and maybe across the street. Okay? That's who our neighbor is. But if you remember, the Pharisees came to Jesus one time and they asked him directly, who is my neighbor? And what did Jesus answer? Come on. He gave the parable of the Good Samaritan because what he wanted to do is he wanted to take that definition of neighbor and continually broaden it. The Pharisees had this desire to shrink it, to shrink it down to the fewest number of people. Why? Because they knew the Old Testament said they had to be nice to their neighbors. So I want to define neighbor as being, well, the Pharisees just like me. And Jesus gives the story of the parable where the worthless person, in the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritan, is the only person that does good to the man who has been beaten up. Thus broadening the definition of who neighbor is is back to the verse we started in verse 27 do not withhold good from those who deserve it who deserves it well i can put my pharisee hat on and i can shrink that number until it barely includes my spouse and might only include my kids on good days I can shrink it down so it means nothing. Or I can follow the example of Christ and broaden it till it includes all of those I come in contact with. Think about that. I don't know if you've ever read the Brothers Karamazov, and it begins with the discussion of the uh, uh, monk who dies at the beginning, and he talks about, before he dies, he talks about the fact that we are all responsible for those around us. 
Who knows what impact you might have on some total stranger that you have an instantaneous contact with? Who knows? But if I am broadening my definition of who my neighbor is, I am looking for opportunities to do good to everyone I come in contact with, and I am not plotting evil against anybody. You see, I might actually plot evil against some competitor, somebody who's competing with me for something that I want, be it a job or be it the latest toy on the shelf at Walmart on Black Friday. Oh, we won't even go there. If I narrow the definition of neighbor, then I have restricted who I have to do good to, and I have enlarged who I can plot against. And Jesus and Solomon in the book of Proverbs is saying, don't do that. Broaden the idea of who your neighbor is. Broaden the idea of who you do good to. And shrink, shrink the idea, the group that you think you can get away with plotting evil against. Just don't do it. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. The implication? They are expecting, because of the relationship with you, to be treated truthfully, to be treated with integrity. And you take that relationship and you use it as an opportunity to do them harm. I expect to be treated well. Therefore, I can use that as a tool, a weapon, to get away with something. I read a book this week about, well, it's about bond salesmen. <coughs> and it's horrible. I mean, I have this relationship. I'm the broker of a, and I just can use you. I can abuse you because you think I'm looking out for your best interest. I'm not looking out for your best interest. I'm looking out for my best interest. That is not what we're dealing with here. If someone lives in a trusting relationship with you, you need to honor that trust and you need to deal with them with integrity and truthfulness and in fact, look out for their good. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later. Do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Do not accuse a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. I'll ask the question again. What would prompt us to accuse someone of something? If they did it, okay. <laughs> Pardon? If we've been hurt? Envy and jealousy. We're going to get to that one in the next verse. <laughs> The devil would make us, yes. False information. Vengeance. Ah. Pardon? Totally disagree with them. 
Why do we do things? Okay? I mean, just pick anything. Why do we do things? Okay? We have good motives for doing things. We have average motives for doing things. And we have bad motives for doing things. I mean, right? I mean, let's just face it. This is who we are. Okay? So I can do good to someone for the highest motive. And I should do good for the highest motive. I may be doing good for them just out of habit, which actually I, I happen to like that, okay? That means you've been brought up well if you're doing good out of habit. But I may be doing good just because I want something from them later, and I figure if I do good to them now, they'll give me something later, and my motive's not very good. Now, when someone does you good, why did they do it? You ready for this? Sometimes you really have no idea. Charity says, I assume a good motive unless there is outstanding evidence to the contrary. I assume a good motive. If you're of a cynical 21st century American mindset, you're always going to assume that they're working an angle. You're always going to assume that they've got something that they're plotting against you. You're always going to assume the bad motive. I feel like I can accuse someone of doing something for the wrong reason if it makes me look good and them look bad. I mean, the, the most outstanding example of this are politicians, okay? If a person from the other party does something, I assume he's doing it for evil and wicked reasons. I mean, really, why else would he do it, right? If somebody from my party does something, I'm going to assume that he's doing it for virtuous reasons. I mean, why else would he do it, right? Well, as a believer, it is quite possible I, uh, that I have slandered that individual from the other party by assuming a false motive that may or may not have been there. I don't know. And Christian charity says, in the absence of evidence, I am going to assume the good motive. Why do I accuse other people? Because I want an advantage over them. I want to be elevated in statue above them. I want to be elevated to position of power above them. I want something. And by accusing them, I have put them in their place. Now, as was mentioned, there is the possibility they really did something wrong. Okay? I'm not sure that's what this passage is talking about here, though. Do not accuse a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. You read this and you think, well, I don't go around accusing people. Well, maybe you do. Maybe it's the people in the other political party. Maybe, maybe it's your spouse. Okay, you don't voice it. 
But in your mind, you're thinking, they're only doing that to get back at me. No, you would never do that, would you? I read a book a couple of years ago that we use in the marriage mentoring program called Love and Respect. And he is a counselor, always has couples coming to him, and they say, oh, he didn't treat me with love because he did this. And he goes, why do you think he did that? Oh, he did it because he, he, he hates me. And his question is, does he generally act like he loves you? Well, yeah. Could there be another motivation? Maybe he was just thoughtless. Maybe it just didn't. But we assume, we assume that something is being done for a bad motive and we accuse the other person. You did this on purpose. You did. We actually do this more than we think we do. As we look at other people and we accuse them of things that may, they may, it actually may be true. That person from the other political party may actually be a scoundrel. I don't know. But we need to not go around accusing people just to get a position of advantage over someone else. Integrity, truthfulness, Christian charity means that we give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Yes. We assume the role of God. We assume the role of God because we assume we know more than we really know. <laughs> Jesus actually said that too in the Sermon on the Mount. Just watch it. Don't go accusing people of things that there's no way of you knowing. Why do we do that? Well, we do it to gain a position of influence. I also think we're, we do it because we're so worried that we're going to be taken advantage of. Okay? I mean, I'll make it as nebulous as I can. I have a coworker who's just paranoid that if he says anything bad about management, they're going to squish him. And I go, have they ever squished anybody? No, but they might. And I'm like, what does that mean, squish you? Well, I, I don't know. It's a fault. It is implying a motive on the part. And I go, they don't care enough about you to squish you. I mean, he's a great worker. He works fabulously. We are projecting our fears, our concerns on the other person and assuming they're doing things for bad motives. And what we are doing is we're accusing people. It says accusing people for no reason. We actually have reasons but we don't have any good ones. <laughs> Once again, if your neighbor shoots your dog and blows up your house, okay, you've got a reason to accuse them. Call the police and accuse them to death, okay? That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing 
with no obvious good reason other than your pride, your projection of your nature onto the other person. Do not envy a violent man or choose any of his ways. Here's the envy. Okay, why in the world would you envy a violent man? Successful. Are you saying the violent person is a successful? Sometimes. We saw in chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs that ultimately those who live a life of violence and destruction are in fact going to reap what they sow. They are going to do that. We have confidence that going down that path leads to destruction. But you know, in the short term, sometimes they look like they win. That lousy business person who cares only for themselves, they look like they're getting ahead. And you sit there and go, I'd like to have what that person has. I'd like the stuff that they have. I'd like the power that they have. And you begin to envy people who have acquired what they have by ungodly methods. We would never do that, would we? We would never look at those around us and say, gosh, I wish I had some of that. I mean, I can think of dozens of examples. Some of them not very polite. Where we look at other people and we go, they're, they're not believers. They're not Christians. In fact, he's rather unscrupulous. But he's getting ahead in this world. I want some of that. I envy them. So we envy them for what they get out of it. Unfortunately, sometimes we envy them because of the power that they appear to have to totally ignore the law. We actually see this in movies, and we don't want to admit it, but we see the shady character on the edge who makes their own rules, who does their own thing, and we begin to think, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool, that autonomous freedom to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, that's pretty cool. We begin to envy the individual who doesn't follow the law. And the writer is telling us, don't do that. Don't envy them. What we have to do is take our eyes off the narrow view and look at the long-term view that ultimately that path does lead to destruction. Oftentimes, oftentimes, we actually live long enough to see it in this world. We see the guy that has all the girls 
and then dies a lonely man. And we go, gosh, I bet people used to envy him because he had all the girls. But now he's a lonely man. We envy the person who has all the stuff. And then we realize that all that stuff has brought them no happiness and no contentment. We talked last week, and we will repeat it over and over again. To follow the path of wisdom requires faith. It requires you being able to see God and say, God says this is the right path to go on, even though sometimes, right now, the wicked seem to be doing very well. Do not envy a violent man or choose any of his ways, for the Lord detests a perverse man, but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is a Christian virtue. We see this throughout the scripture, throughout the scripture, where it says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yet, if there's a Christian virtue that is ignored or despised in our society today, it is, in fact, humility. I mean, we think it's really bad. Part of that is just a semantic reason. You know, we look at um, blessed are the meek in the Beatitudes, and meek sounds a whole lot like weak, and we don't want to be weak because if we're weak, People will take advantage of us, so we don't want to be meek, so we don't want to be humble because it looks too much like being meek. So we ignore it. Or, this is even better, we come up with a false humility that we parade around people thinking that people will be impressed with our humility. This week I was listening to Actually, I think I was listening to National Public Radio, and they had some uh, linguistic guy on. He was talking about new words and phrases that came out during this year, you know, kind of the year-end wrap-up. And the guy finally asked, you know, what was your favorite one that came out this year? And he said the word that he liked the most was humblebrag. Yes, it's spelt just like you think it is, humblebrag. It's when you're bragging about yourself while trying to appear very humble. You know, my kid got into Harvard, but it was no big deal, you know. Yes, I did win the Nobel Prize, but you know, the weather in Stockholm is pretty lousy this time of the year. So you're bragging about yourself while trying to appear humble. And as nice 21st century American Christians, we walk a delicate line here, right? You know, we're supposed to be humble, yet who really wants to be humble? I want you to know all the good things that I've done. Humility is recognizing our state before God. As long as I spend my life comparing my life to you, 
I can make myself look pretty good, okay? Well, maybe not you, but I can find somebody worse than you. And as long as I compare myself to them, I'm okay. But the moment that I take my eyes off you or them and place my eyes on God, all of a sudden, all that false pride just washes away. C.S. Lewis gives the example about the humble architect who designs the huge cathedral that really is beautiful. And he says it's beautiful. But he would have said the same thing if someone else had made it. Because he's not judging him. He's judging the object that was built. We judge things by us and our pride. Why do we look at the wicked and we go, huh, they seem to be getting ahead? Because they are putting themselves forward. Their pride is driving their projection of who they are. And we go, gosh, I want to be like that. But faith tells us God blesses the humble. And he has nothing good to say for those who are prideful and think they can do it on their own. He mocks proud mockers. This is God. He sits there and he laughs at them. Psalms chapter 2. The nations rise up against God. And it says God just laughs. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You know? It's like if you had the, the world's greatest martial artist standing here. And a two-year-old with a bobby pin attacks him. Okay? The martial artist, if he had a sense of humor, would just laugh. What does this two-year-old think he's going to do? And just magnify that a thousand-fold. And here's God. And here's you thinking that you're going to ignore God. And it's going to have no implication at all. And it says God just laughs. What else can he do? It's humorous. He mocks those who think they can do it on their own. But he gives grace to the humble. Bottom line. You want God's mocking? Or do you want God's grace? The wise inherit honor, but fools, he, he, God, holds up to shame. The world can put anybody they want up as the person of the year, the man of the year, the group of the year, the whatever of the year. They can be good, they can be bad. You know, Barbara Walters can interview the Kardashians and say they're the most interesting people of the year, and I don't have a clue why. Okay? To be quite honest, I don't even think I could pick a Kardashian out of a lineup with a map. The world can hold anybody up they want. But ultimately, ultimately, God is going to be the judge of the universe. And without faith, we won't know that. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for those who come to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. You all have a Merry Christmas, get some rest, play with the grandkids, and we'll be back in three weeks. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have shown us how we ought to live our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would give me the strength, the energy, the discernment to follow the path that you have laid out. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.